I think there's going to be a lot of people leaving medicine, physicians, nurses, and kind of saying, I did not like this. This took a huge toll on me. What other options do I have? Mm. Am I close to retirement and maybe I can do something else for a little while? Or is this just, I can't ever do this again. I need to get out. At least on a physician level, a lot of physicians are already near retirement age. But I think this is going to make people reevaluate and leave healthcare. Viruses mutate as part of their just normal replication cycle. Every time a virus is copied, there's an error rate and that creates mutations. The more virus that's around, the global volume of viruses, as it were, the more opportunity there is for creating variants. So the best way to stop variants is basically to reduce virus production, which means vaccinate people. What I'd like to see in the next six months is a recognition that things have to fundamentally change, uh, not just with the resources and the money in the COVAX program, but around intellectual property and regulatory barriers to getting more vaccine manufactured in places like India. It's not just throwing money at it. One of the problems has to do with not sharing the intellectual property for all the vaccines. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and it's time for another COVID-19 roundtable. Vaccines are at the core of this episode more than ever before, specifically how U.S. vaccination rates are working to slow the spread, if international vaccinations can stem an influx of troubling variants into the U.S., what is going on with vaccine hesitancy, and when might we envision something like meaningful herd immunity? Those topics are far trickier than you might imagine. For example, up until now, herd immunity was a distant goal. Now it is coming into view, and we actually need to wrap our arms around what exactly that means and what's going to be acceptable for us as a country and ultimately as a worldwide community. You'll hear our panelists dig into herd immunity, discuss how we dig out of the tremendous psychological impact that the pandemic has had, and really wrestle with problems like continued inequity, vaccines for kids, and providing the pure, convenient access for all Arizonans that's required. It's still a race between virus mutation and mass vaccination. For the moment, it appears the U.S. is ahead of the game. But indications from states like Michigan are making many experts wary. So let's get to it. March Madness may have settled in terms of basketball, but for COVID, we've transitioned to an anxious April. Which means that it's time to talk effectiveness, exhaustion, hesitancy, mutations, infections, frustrations, and more. As of April 12, 2021. We are so fortunate to have an amazing crew here, starting with Dr. Kara Guerin from Valley Wise Health. Kara, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Also joining us today, as per usual, Dr. Joshua LaBert from Arizona State University. Josh, how's it going? I'm doing great. And our bedrock of the show. From the Arizona Public Health Association, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how's it going? Thank you for calling me a bedrock. (laughs) I'm doing good. Where we are right now is some strange sense of not really there yet, but feeling like we could be, and then feeling like there's still a monster hiding behind us. I think it would be a good idea to start today by talking about what it is we're trying to get to in order to achieve some sense of normal. And that conversation would, by default, start with herd immunity. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we talked about it from the very beginning. And interestingly, it doesn't have as clear a definition as you might think. 
I'm working with some folks at ASU Biodesign on to see if we can come up with as good a definition as we can find or have consensus definition on so that we can get it out there ahead of time so that at some point we can explain when we achieve herd immunity, and I think we will in this country, why we think it's there and what it actually means. And so our working definition in the working paper right now is that in the absence of all of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, that you would have community transmission with an R naught, R factor below one for a long enough period of time so that you're sure that while there's no mitigation measures in place, except for the vaccine, that's a mitigation measure. Let's say the Diamondbacks are full capacity or is how many tickets they can sell and same with the Suns and that nightclubs are full on capacity, which all of that stuff is already too. I think we're really close to the point where there's so few interventions mitigation measures in place that if we were to see a sustained drop in cases that there would be a time in the next couple of months where we could say we've achieved that, that there's so little mitigation happening out there and we still see cases dropping that were there. Now, the wild card, and that's what we're putting in at the end of this little essay we're writing, is the variants could change things quickly. Like you can achieve herd immunity and have a drop in cases, even though no one's wearing masks anymore and stadiums are in full capacity, and then a new variant shows up and you're back at increased transmission because of the new variant. So there's plenty there there, not the least of which we had talked probably a couple of weeks back now about the idea that preprints played a huge role in our learning process during this pandemic. Over the weekend, a preprint comes out of Israel that says, hey, the South African variant is not one that is prevented by the Pfizer vaccine. What do we make of that in light of what Will's comments were about variants? I didn't see the actual article, but I saw essentially they took 400 people and they looked at the unvaccinated versus vaccinated, and they looked at the variants that people were affected by, and the people that were vaccinated had eight cases of the South African variant and none in the unvaccinated group. So they said that perhaps the Pfizer vaccine doesn't protect as well against the South African variant because eight of the people that had COVID in the vaccinated group had South African variant and none of them in the other group. That's my understanding. Yes. Based on the performance of the Pfizer vaccine, they expected to see maybe one in 400. They saw eight in 400. That's not enough to freak me out. What's right. enough to freak me out is just the lack of global production capacity. I know COVAX is underway and they're doing the best they can with the resources that they have, but the global supply is just not where we need it to be to get enough of this world vaccinated in time to prevent future variants. That's freaks me out more, not right. this little preprint. Well, you've been saying that if we don't get vaccine to the rest of the world, there'll be more variants. And I realized I don't really understand how that works. And I read that the more person-to-person -person transmission, the more likely there are to be variants. Is that just because viruses mutate? Viruses mutate as part of their just normal replication cycle. Every time a virus is copied, there's an error rate and that creates mutations. The more virus that's around, the global volume of virus, as it were, the more opportunity there is for creating variants. So the best way to stop variants is basically to 
reduce virus production, which means vaccinate people. The global viral burden was enormous in December, January. There was a virus being replicated everywhere. And that by itself is just going to create new copies of virus. So we're going to keep seeing that until we can suppress the number of people who get infected. And while we have seemingly plenty of vaccine in the States, or for the most part, we're doing pretty well. Lots of parts of the world we're seeing more difficulty. And the latest news out of China is that they're not so sure that the vaccine they're making is working that well. There's been some question mark about whether the vaccines are working, partly because they're getting very disparate readouts from different clinical trials, but overall it's not what they were hoping for. And that's a good chunk of the world right there. So the more we can reduce spread, the better, and the fewer viruses made, the better. It obviously depends on the overall case burden, but it's probably like the flu. It's a matter of time before COVID produces a variant that the vaccines don't address. Right. I think that is a matter of time. And of course, the more partially vaccinated people there are, the more likely there is for some, some of that to emerge as well. But fortunately, the me- methods for making the vaccine are amenable to updating. Yeah, especially these new messenger RNA vaccines, they can tweak the the RNA genome and come out with a new vaccine pretty quick. The thing that we're all concerned about are not all the mutations, but the particular mutations that are on the protein coat, the stuff that codes for the surface. Because if you have mutations there, that's how you can escape the way the human body is recognizing the virus and creating antibodies and T-cells to it. So, and the other things are the transmissibility. That's why 1117 is worse. Not that it's escaping the immune response, but it's so more transmissible. Evidently, it sticks better to the the receptor and it's just very transmissible. It just sticks better. It transmits and coming full circle here a little bit, the computation that's done to determine how many people need to be immune to achieve herd immunity includes transmission. So if you have a variant in circulation, that's more transmissible, then you need to achieve a higher fraction of people that are immune to prevent that spread. It is now inevitable. I mean, the numbers in Arizona for 117, based on the dropouts that we see at Biodesign, suggest that if it's not dominant now, it will be next week. We're seeing numbers as high as 80% of the positive samples in a single day. It's been rising exponentially for the last month, and I'm sure it will continue to do so. So I think it will dominate in this state very soon. We are not alone. That is that is what's causing the spike in Michigan as well. Yep. And now news reports are coming in that a lot of young people are getting the B117 variant. Yes. And that is leading to a more significant contraction of COVID-19 than before. And so we are seeing more young people hospitalized than we've seen before. And we're starting to see it, it appears more incidents of long COVID through B117 as well. Yes. All, all of that. For sure. That was what they observed in Israel as well. I mean, in Israel, they rolled out the vaccine very effectively, but they did, as we did, focus on older people first. And what they saw was hospitalizations shifting from the older population to the younger population. Much more younger people were end up in the hospital and ended up with symptoms and so on. So in the race between mutation and vaccination, how does it look like we're doing right now, Josh? Well, that's hard to say. In America, in general, we're sort of mostly flat, but we're seeing a lot of evidence in some places, as you mentioned, Michigan, to some extent, a little bit in Massachusetts and other places on the eastern seaboard. We're starting to see 
numbers rising a little bit. Even in Arizona, the trend is certainly up as opposed to down. We're seeing the seven-day trailing average of new cases is inching north. It's not crossed the 1,000 new cases a day mark, but it's certainly not down where it was a week and a half ago. So certainly I would be paying attention. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that many of the people who were at the most risk of severe outcome, the older population, we're getting good vaccination in that population. But there is the concern, as you just mentioned, that it will affect younger people until we get them vaccinated. So we want to continue encouraging everybody to go get vaccinated. One more point to come back again to this conversation of herd immunity. One thing that herd immunity does not mean is it does not mean that any given individual is protected unless that person is vaccinated. So herd immunity means that on a population basis, it cannot spread quickly through the population. But if you personally want to be protected from severe outcome, the only way to do that is get vaccinated or have your own immunity by some mechanism, preferably by vaccination. Well, and in fact, Will, uh, the Biden administration's health advisor, Dr. Atul Gawande, said, not even sure we need to discuss herd immunity and its definition so much as we need to talk about what we think is going to be enough of an acceptable outcome of living with COVID-19. And he actually proposes that potentially it's not about herd immunity. It's about whether or not we can get COVID-19 to something comparable to the flu. People are going to get sick. People are going to pass away, but not at a significant enough level. Well, is- bottom line is that decision's been made by Governor Ducey and Director Christ already here. It's acceptable. They got rid of everything. They got rid of all the mandatory everything. So it's a moot point at this point in our state. That argument applies in states that were disciplined enough to continue non-pharmaceutical interventions until they could make that decision and measure it against influenza. As far as I know, Governor Ducey and Director Chris didn't compare things to influenza when they made that decision. They just made it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but herd immunity implies there are no cases. Like it is gone. But... I think it's expectations. I don't think we can expect herd immunity. I think we can expect low transmissions, high vaccinations, continued low level of infections. Tim and I are trying to, I hope, we're able to get some momentum to redefine what it actually means. And it doesn't mean zero. It doesn't mean no transmission. It means a declining transmission in an environment with no mitigation. The metaphor that I sometimes use is imagine a warehouse filled with furniture or wooden objects and... If you lit a fire on one thing, what's the likelihood that you could get a chain reaction that could rush through that warehouse and set everything ablaze? And the mitigation is if if you could wet down most of that furniture so that it couldn't catch on fire, how much furniture would you have to wet? If you lit one thing, it would unlikely to spread to the rest of the room because it was surrounded by wet things. That's the argument here. But somewhere in that room, if there's other dry furniture, it could still catch on fire. And if there's clusters of dry furniture, then those things could catch each other on fire until they hit a wall of wet stuff. Good metaphor. That's something you can picture. Kara, is there anything that you're seeing at the emergent level? Are you seeing Um, this sense of plateau or are you seeing this sense of steady increase little by little? Yeah, I think more of a sense of steady increase. I'm a a very small microcosm, but for a while we weren't seeing much COVID, but now we're seeing a lot more of younger people coming in with upper respiratory viral infections. And some is COVID and a lot is not, but people feel horrible and they want to know if it's COVID or not because they need to know if they can go back to work. 
yeah, we see people that feel horrible, but they also want to be tested because that limits what they can do. So what are the outcomes like? I mean, most of them are going home. Exactly. There's not many people that are admitted, especially compared to last summer and last winter. And there's not a lot of people that even require a tremendous amount of emergency department care. Most people require very little, uh, more diagnostic care to see if if you have COVID or if Mm. it's a pneumonia instead. Try and make you feel better, explain there's no magic bullet for this. You're going to feel crappy for a while. Here are some medications that might help the symptoms and go home and isolate. And people also still are surprised that they have COVID, which Mm. is kind of crazy. And they still are like, really? I have to isolate for 10 days even if I'm feeling better? (laughs) It's like that everyone has forgotten. It's very very bizarre. It was only two months ago when we had this horrible, horrible surge. I don't understand. I was in the bars in South Scottsdale all weekend and you're telling me I have COVID? (laughs) What? Right. Or I traveled and went somewhere where there's no masks and everyone's eating and drinking closely to each other. Just, I think to a degree it's because people feel like they have freedom. You say you don't have to wear a mask and you're allowed to sit next to strangers maskless. So people feel like they have freedom and so feel perhaps they should be safe, which is kind of a false sense of security. And if you're not really paying attention or not as health literate as we would hope, then perhaps it's a misunderstanding. Here's the other key question. Obviously, like you said, a microcosm being Valleywise Health, but it wasn't that long ago that we were seeing untold numbers of people in the hospital. How would you say that staff is doing? How would you say that the medical profession is emerging from the past surge? I think obviously people are much happier and and kind of a little mentally healthier because you're not seeing people die in droves. But now is a time when people are reevaluating what their plans are. I think there's going to be a lot of people leaving medicine, physicians, nurses, and kind of saying, I did not like this. This took a huge toll on me. What other options do I have? Mm. Am I close to retirement and maybe I can do something else for a little while? Or is this just, I can't ever do this again. I need to get out at least on a physician level, a lot of physicians are already near retirement age, but I think this is gonna make people reevaluate and leave healthcare. How about you? You just had a birthday. <laughs> I did have a birthday. Yes, I love what I do, but I'm here to stay. I put a lot of time, effort, and money into what I do, so. <laughs> right. It's not, I do love what I do, but changing directions is a big deal. And that's not something I'm prepared to do. <laughs> As a corollary question for you then, in terms of reevaluation, one of the numbers that struck me was during the 1A vaccination group, mm-hmm. almost half of medical care people did not take vaccine. So I'm wondering if at this point people are, now that so many others have been vaccinated, are they now going back and saying, you know what, it looks like it is pretty safe after 100 million doses, so maybe I'll do it? There are some. That's exactly kind of the vaccine hesitancy, like it's too new, it was rushed through the process. I think that little by little, there are people that are like, oh, okay, this isn't such a bad idea. Having said that, if they're that hesitant, my experience is they're also not going to get it if it's not convenient. If it's not an easy appointment to get, and you already are kind of lukewarm, you're like, okay, I guess I'll do it. You're not going to log on to the website and go to State Farm Stadium at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, you get it 
if you go to your primary care doctor and they're like, oh, hey, while you're here, do you want your vaccine? Yeah, I was working with a group of students on this, on an AHEC grant that we have through the U of A, and their project was to look at vaccine acceptance in 18 to 26-year-olds in Arizona. And the primary finding was just what you just said, convenience and price. But the price is it's going to be free. Everyone know that, so that's not a problem. So what they don't want to do is to go to a website that looks like it was built in 2006 and try to make an appointment. <laughs> they want to have it be easy and convenient. And that's what Israel's doing right now. They're giving people vaccines in bars. So funny. I just thought to myself, can you imagine if we went to Scottsdale and gave it out at bars? That's so Yeah. Funny. In terms of vaccine hesitancy, people who don't want the vaccine, there's the small group of the anti-vaxxers. And that's a small group from what I understand. And that's a whole different discussion. But the people that are hesitant, there's different people. There's people who want it if it's convenient. There's people who don't think it's ready or safe or went through too quickly. And then there's people that don't believe in it for various reasons, whether it's politics or distrust of medical care. So I think every group requires a different Mm -hmm. strategy. And so for people at bars who are likely to be younger, that's a good strategy. I don't know if it's effective. Like, I don't know if that's Yeah, you just got to make sure they're not impaired when they make the choice. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine? (laughs) That's a whole different problem. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Some of those things are easier to fix than others, like making it convenient, free, and easy, at least in this country. Those are things that can be overcome with some system and policy changes. Convincing someone who doesn't believe in it, boy, that's tough. I I am hearing from some of my students that they've been able to get it at drugstores now. I I don't know how how frequently that's happening now, but they they just went to a drugstore and managed to just get added on that day. That's the federal pharmacy program, which are getting direct shipments from the federal government at increasingly high shipment levels. I go and I look and I, I don't promote it on Twitter until I confirm that there's lots of appointments. The last two weeks, every time I go to vaccinefinder.org and I punch in my zip code, I find appointments all over the place in different pharmacies. Because before it was pulling up no appointment available kind of thing. And so I would, uh, of course, not promote it then. But now, every time yeah. I check, there's appointments. That's great. Is that availability or is that hesitancy playing out? Which do you think it is or is it both? Well, supply. I mean, supply is increasing. And and the other thing is the state is just promoting their state website, which doesn't have the pharmacies in it. So all the tweets and and the media coverage, everyone's tweeting out the link to the state's website, which doesn't have pharmacies in it. It's just their pods that they're so proud of around town. So the pharmacy program isn't getting enough attention, I don't think. I have also heard that people are walking into pharmacies and you can walk in and then and ask and they'll be like, yeah, we have a vial of Moderna right now. You want me to draw it up? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I've heard. Yeah. That same day and maybe even like almost immediately been able to get in and get it. Right now, we're also talking about a group that it's convenient, but I think the other more difficult groups are going to be people don't speak English or the people who don't mm. trust healthcare yeah. and kind of the strategies yeah. of getting trusted people, whether it's religious or celebrities or whoever it is to support it, support the vaccine so that people feel comfortable to get it. Well, we've said this before, but let's be clear about it again. One of the pieces of feedback that Kara just gave was that people are still thinking that the vaccine development was rushed. True or false? 
Well, it's still emergency use authorization. And so in that respect, they are right, because this is not a vaccine that's gone through the full approval process. It's a UA. So that's why I heard the military is not making it compulsory to get vaccinated is because they're like, well, this vaccine is emergency use authorization, so we can't compel our armed forces to get the vaccine. But that might change once the vaccines are fully approved by FDA. Worth mentioning that that a couple of them now are coming up for full authorization. I think Pfizer is in that process now, and I suspect Moderna will be only a week or two later. Despite the fact that they went through emergency use, they were still tested on tens of thousands of people oh, yeah. and since been tested on millions of people. Yeah. And the adverse reaction rate is very, very low. As far as I can tell, the number of people who've had severe COVID after vaccination is approaching zero, if it's not zero. I mean, it's really rare. And the enhanced yeah. surveillance system is there. It's not just the VAERS system that's capturing data. It's like the IHS, the VA. There's an enhanced system at HHS. There's, it's just it's way more post-deployment data capture than a usual vaccine. Much more than a usual yeah. vaccine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they, the V-Safe program. All of those things have been monitoring with extraordinary scrutiny, and the outcomes have been outstanding. Even, I would argue, the AstraZeneca, which is not in the United States and has had a couple of adverse reactions attached to it. Still, the rate at which that occurs is so far below the rate of negative outcomes from getting COVID that it's pretty easy call here. But, this might yeah. be a good time to remind listeners that by side effects, you mean allergic reactions. And or severe outcomes. Yeah. I mean, everybody outcomes. gets, yeah. you know, a lot of people get sore arms. People who get Moderna get fevers. There are things that occur. They're limited to a day or two. They're not long-term outcomes here. For the flu vaccine prior to COVID, that's always the, the complaint people had is I don't get the flu vaccine because it gives me the flu which is not correct. That's not um, correct. But you just feel poorly because your body is responding to the vaccine and doing right. what it's supposed to do. Full disclosure, I used to be one of those people about seven years ago. It kind of makes sense in that you don't want to get a vaccine that makes you feel poorly. I get that. And if you don't understand how vaccines work, you think it could have given you the flu? No, no. It's right after the flu knocked me out for three weeks in a row uh -huh. one year, I learned <laughs> right, right. I learned what the real flu is yeah. like. Uh -huh. Yeah. Perhaps this is my emergency medicine brain, but it's very difficult to like walk someone through this. Like it's not the flu and you're going to be okay. You might feel poorly. The flu feels much worse. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to convince someone who feels totally fine to make yourself feel poorly for a few days for your future self. Can we talk about the clinical trial for kids? So Pfizer put in their application to the FDA for authorization of, of the vaccine, their same vaccine, I think, in the same dosage, right, Josh? Yeah, you know? that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah I looked and looked and looked, and I couldn't see that it was any different on the doses, but for 12 to 15, 15 and then where, where the Where the outcomes are really good, where the protection yeah. is. 100%, it said. 100%, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Com comparing the placebo to the, the vaccine, it was, uh, yeah, it was 100%. Yeah. Everyone yeah. that got COVID was not vaccinated in that trial. That's and amazing. it was, I think the trial was 1,200 of each placebo and vaccine. That's amazing. How does that play into herd immunity? I read something like 22% of the U.S. population is kids. Are kids 
calculate into that differently or is it all kind of just one big population evaluation? Yeah, Josh, how is your modelers uh, handle? I think, I, think the, I think that the calculation is for anyone who could transmit the virus. So I think they would count. And I think what benefit of vaccinating kids is that it would help us get there quicker because otherwise, if they're excluded from getting vaccinated, then you have to get a greater fraction of people who can get vaccinated, vaccinated. But now if the kids can do it, then that'll help us with all the hesitancy. And it looks like it'll be authorized by in plenty of time to get them vaccinated before the school year. So that would be sixth graders and up. Yeah, that'd be great. And then I, it looks like to me, because the clinical trials on the six month to 11 year olds is the enrollment happened in February and the vaccines were given in March, I think, for Moderna, so they still need a booster yet. I mean, I'd be surprised to see the vaccine available for the fall for for the elementary school kids and preschoolers, just because it's a more complicated thing. And also, they're administering different doses because, I mean, there's a huge difference between the body weight and immune system of a six-month-old compared to an 11-year-old. So they're trying to find that balance of what's the most effective dose that's an appropriate dose and minimizes side effects in that little tiny kid group. Who wants to cultivate their inner artist? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm going to ask each of you to create the picture of what things look like six months from now that is the best possible picture you can imagine from here and then name the one, two, or three key components of making that picture a reality. Will, starting with you. I'm going to go global on this one. What I'd like to see in the next six months is a recognition that things have to fundamentally change, uh, not just with the resources and the money in the COVAX program, but around intellectual property and regulatory barriers to getting more vaccine manufactured in places like India. It, it's not just throwing money at it. I think one of the problems has to do with not sharing the intellectual property for the, all the vaccines. So in my worldview of the picture I'm painting is that intellectual property issues have been worked out, regulatory barriers have been worked out and there's a lot more global manufacturing happening in places like India and China. And that increases the global supply so that we're much closer to being able to vaccinate the developing world by February. By that, you mean, well, essentially that Pfizer and Moderna, just for examples, have a patent on this. And like generic and, and non-generic drugs, they don't wanna share it because of money reasons. Well, I don't know the different reasons that maybe there's some of its money, maybe some of it's legal. I just don't know okay. the ins and For outs of what. Yeah, well, it's, it's probably even more complicated than that because there's probably in how they manufacture their, oh. their vaccines and they probably are going to be very reluctant to share that. Right. There's, there's probably oh. trade secrets involved in yeah. how they, cause it's not just the MRNA. It's how you stabilize nice. it by transport and then actually get taken up by human cells and, and then presented as antigens and all the tricks of the trade that go into that. It's a wonderful vision that you have, Will, but whether or not that's likely to happen, not just because they want to make money off of this, but more likely because they have a vision for the future. 
now that the world has seen the value of mRNA vaccines, you can bet that they're already working on yeah. all kinds of other diseases out there. And if they give away the, the recipe for this one, I think they're worried about the next one. And their competitive position, yeah. But, yeah. John, to be fair, John didn't constrain me by reality. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So, Will is a surrealist painter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that dolly, uh, yeah. Who's ready to offer up their picture? Josh? I guess I'm going to be a bit more pedestrian and sort of think about getting the, the school year. I'm an academic and a university person. My vision here is that September, the students are going to come flooding back to university. There's not going to be masks. We're going to start holding classes in person again education will, will be much more, again, about the dynamic between professors and students. People are going to be able to return to the dormitories. They're going to be complaining because they have to have roommates again. <laughs> <laughs> but all of that will be a good social endeavor because I think it's going to be a long time before people recover from the psychological effects of this whole thing. I think it's been a far more devastating than people appreciate. Getting people interacting again is going to take a while. I think there's going to be a, po a subset of our population that are still terrified to interact. And getting them back out of their shells is going to be challenging. I'm terrified, but also into a routine where they wonder whether they need to socialize as much as they used to. I'm already seeing that. I teach a class at ASU, and I was one of the first last year to take my class online and take them out of the classroom because I was afraid of getting people infected. But now that the numbers are down in the state, and now that most of my students are vaccinated, I'm one of the first to go back to the classroom. We meet again in person, but there's a subset of my students that just don't want to come in. They're like, what? why? I can just do it online. And since ASU supports this hybrid model, I have about, I would say maybe a little bit more than half my students come to class in person, and, and maybe 40% of them, I can't convince them to come in. And is that because they're afraid or because they've decided that this new modality is okay to, for them? It's a little bit of both, I think. I think it's both. Because, you know, they, they will come in. When it's their turn to present, they'll come in. <laughs> then, but, then, but then the next week, they won't. So now I'm, I'm actually going to probably bring my students together at my house at the end of the semester for an in-person get-together because they're all vaccinated. They can't come if they're not vaccinated. But if they're vaccinated, they can come and we'll hang out. So that's a great picture, Josh, but how do you get there? What are the keys to getting there? It all comes back to vaccination. It, it really does. It really means we really have to convince people to get vaccinated. And fortunately, the university is now starting to offer students vaccine, including the undergraduates, including my own son got vaccinated the other day. He was offered the chance to get the Johnson & Johnson, which is great, one and done. I love it. And I said, yeah, take it. You know, I mean, I, he, and he, this was no special thing. I mean, he was part of a whole cohort of students that were offered. Great. Kara, your picture is the final picture. I'm going a little more everyday life because I have little kids. So for me, it's Halloween and Thanksgiving. So trick-or-treating with masks on. Last year, we didn't trick-or-treat. We uh, Which masks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably the COVID masks. <laughs> I will freely admit that I think my family will be wearing masks for a long time because I think they work. They help stop other viruses too. Now, will my uh, two and a half year old agree with that? Probably not, but. So the ability to go back to school for elementary school kids, the ability to do things like trick or treating and the ability to gather with other people that are vaccinated at Thanksgiving time. And I think what Josh was talking about is very 
salient as well for me because my newly six-year-old, her second pandemic birthday that she just had, has not been in school for a year. She was online and then now she's homeschooled. And she has quite a bit of anxiety about uh, you go to the store and, oh, mommy, I touched this. Do I need to sanitize my hands? Is that okay? Or am I allowed to do this? I think that there's a good amount of anxiety. And then once we start doing other activities like gymnastics or sports, which unfortunately we know there is some spread that occurs with that, will she be able to do it? Or is that just going to make her too anxious? After my elderly mother, I will not disclose her age, was vaccinated and fully vaccinated, she was so nervous to go to Costco. Great detail analyzing what's the best day, what's the best time, is it safe? And someone that never would have thought twice about it a year and a half ago. How do we get there? I tend to agree vaccine is the answer, but I also think personal responsibility to help yourself and your community, still wearing masks. And if you're not vaccinated and you're in a big group wearing a mask, I'm kind of doing all the, as Will has said, non-pharmaceutical measures, even if they're inconvenient and less pleasant. Last question, total wild card. We're going to start with Kara this time. When is it time to stop doing an every two week COVID-19 roundtable? <laughs> I really enjoy this. So I would say not for a while. The true question is, is anyone listening? <laughs> my brother tells me he listens. And I know my husband and parents and mother-in-law listen, but... <laughs> yeah. Josh, how about you? When is it time to stop doing an every two-week COVID-19 Yeah, I, I think when, when people feel that they don't need the information anymore, I think that's really going to be the, the deciding factor, right? I mean, the hope is that we're helping people stay grounded. And if they don't feel the need for it anymore, you know, everything is normal, then probably then. But I think there's still enough things going on right now. I think that the rise of B117, the issue that maybe some of the variants floating around are not doing well with the vaccines, the fact that we still have some people hesitant to get vaccinated, there's enough things still happening that I think it still has value. And the current health disparities, the disparities in access, yeah, that's absolutely. still there. I mean, you absolutely. go to Maricopa County's website and you can look at it by zip code and it's still a big, big difference depending on what zip code you live in, in terms of what percentage of population has been covered. Well, for example, I just looked at 85009 yesterday in South Phoenix and they were still at 18% of adults vaccinated. Now, there's a lot of people in their 20s in that zip code. But even so, when you compare that to like North Scottsdale and stuff where the new state-run things is up in Westworld, which is among the most highly vaccinated places in the entire state. So I do like the fact that as the supply increases, the county health departments will continue to get more allocations of vaccine and we'll start to see. For example, I just heard that the South Mountain Community College site, which started as a pop-up vaccine, which means short term, has now become a permanent walk-in site in South Phoenix. So... That's cool. Yeah. So what's your answer there, Will? Because you're already on record as saying we'd be done with these podcasts by June. Let's say when Josh and his team at Biodesign say we're at herd immunity, combined with the fact that, John, you look in the back end of the metrics and say people stopped listening. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Kara. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Will. At this time last year, we were talking consistently about flattening the curve. Now we talk consistently about vaccines. As Josh said, at this point, it all comes back to vaccination as the key to greatly reducing virus volume, which is in turn the key to slowing mutations, which is in turn the most likely way to help us emerge from the pandemic. And that's on top of the number of lives being protected and saved by these highly effective vaccines and their quote-unquote close to zero side effects. Aside from the approaches taken by countries like New Zealand that we profiled earlier this year, 
Vaccination is our community, state, national, and worldwide means to the pandemic's end. And to this roundtable's eventual end as well. We sort of broke the fourth wall, as they say, in asking the question of how much longer we'll continue these dialogues. We're still finding a lot to process and pass along to you. But how do you feel? We would love nothing more than to get your feedback. So hit us up. Comment on Vitalist's Instagram. DM us on Twitter. At mention us on Facebook. You can even email us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. For now, we're going to keep going for as long as we are of service in processing pandemic news and providing insights. But that doesn't mean we aren't open to your thoughts, feedback, and ideas for what's next. Give it some thought, and then give us your thoughts. The Vitalist Spark will be back again soon. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There is a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.